honor the emperor. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to say a few things about politics. Now, if I were sitting in a congregation and the preacher got up and said, honor the emperor, and then I'm going to say a few things about politics, um, I'd be having that little shot of adrenaline running through my veins, and my palms would be getting a little more moist, and I'd ha have no idea what to do with my legs. Right? Should I cross them? Should, I, should they just carry me out of this building? I, I can assure you I like preaching about politics even less than I like hearing about politics from a preacher. And yet, here's where we find ourselves. A few weeks ago, as I was perusing our lectionary in Eastertide, I noticed that we were going to be in First Peter for, for this season, and I kind of like it when we get these moments of being in one book for a particular season and kind of gives us an opportunity to, to sit with a particular author for a season. And so reached out to Father Rob and Deacon Mary and our, and our other preachers and pitched this idea of doing a little series through First Peter. Everyone was enthusiastic, and we'd already divvied up what Sundays we're going to be preaching. So imagine my dismay when I discovered <laughs> that these little plans I had made resulted in me dealing with a passage that says, honor the emperor. But I try to uh, submit to scripture and to our lectionary, and so I, I beg your pardon for potentially causing a little extra perspiration on the palms of your hands. Now, in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election, shortly after Donald Trump had announced his candidacy, I recall it being said of him that the media took him literally but not seriously, whereas his supporters took him seriously but not literally. And I wonder if sometimes this posture can afflict our reading of Scripture. At times, we take it seriously but not literally, and sometimes we take it literally but not seriously. And what might be in play? What do we do with a sentence like, honor the emperor? I think it doesn't, doesn't help that take scripture literally is often used as a bludgeon, either to mock Christians or to provide some kind of a litmus test for whether or not one is the right kind of Christian. And that's the first challenge, I think, with taking scripture literally, is that literality isn't always the best way to make sense of the written word or even the spoken word. When my, um, when my, wife, when my wife writes on a grocery list, milk too, um, I know I have to literally pick up two gallons of milk. That's not a figurative statement there. But when Romeo says to Juliet, it is the East and Juliet is the sun, it'd be bonkers and an insult to Shakespeare to think that Romeo is supposed to be speaking literally. And a similar dynamic influences, I think, our reading of Scripture. Scripture is a, a timeless document in one sense. It's God's word written, useful for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness, as St. Paul says. But it's also written to a specific audience in specific contexts for specific purposes, and thus at times it only literally applies to that context. However, by a process of abstraction and application, we can see how scripture applies to our own context and times and places and to our own selves. But in order to do this, we need to understand a bit more about the context in which these utterances were written. So for First Peter, Good estimate, uh, estimations have it this letter was written during the 60s AD, about 30 years after Christ's ascension. And our estimations have it that Peter likely wrote this from Rome to Christians who were living in Asia Minor, uh, the area that's presently in and around modern-day Greece and Turkey. And this was a region that was squarely within the political confines of the Roman Empire, which spanned the area around Mare Nostrum, the Mediterranean Sea. Well, this context tells us that when Peter tells his readers to honor the emperor, 
he is literally talking about the Roman emperor, likely, in fact, Nero, who reigned until 68 AD. As a tensed document for a particular time, Peter tells his readers literally to honor Emperor Nero. Now, we are not those Christians. We're not living anywhere chronologically near Emperor Nero. How are we to take this literal instruction to honor the emperor for our own time? Well, according to a quick Google search, Japan is the only present country in the world that still has an emperor. I Googled that yesterday. If you're a citizen or a resident of Japan, it's rather easy to take this sentence in its context and apply it to your own context. But for most people in the world, and I think everyone in this room here, we've got to do a bit more work to take this directive and apply it to our own situation. We need to extract or abstract some principle or idea underlying St. Peter's utterance and see if we can't then import that general principle into our own specific context. And yet in order to do this, I think we need to look more broadly, not just at the historical context of what St. Peter is writing, but also at the literary context as well. What's he talking about in this section of his letter that might help us to extract a potentially profitable pr principle? Well, for most of the letter to this point, and we're in chapter two, Peter has been encouraging um, these Christians, these Christian converts to remain faithful in the face of persecution and suffering. Believing in the resurrection of Christ and becoming a Christian for these residents of Asia Minor had put them in a precarious spot, precarious socially as well as politically. Many of them had been Jewish, so they were, many of them were Jewish converts to Christianity, and Judaism was recognized as a religion within the Roman Empire, and for a while, in the first few decades, Christianity was simply considered a subset of Judaism. Only the Christians at this time were in the process of differentiating themselves from the, former, from the Jews, and many of the Jews had not been so keen on these former Jews who were saying that the Messiah had actually already come. This, again, puts the Christians in a precarious place socially and politically. And so Peter, in the previous section of his letter, is, is casting a vision for these Christians of how they can live in a world where their social and political status is held in suspicion. And his encouragement is twofold. Uh, one, he encourages them to live godly and moral lives. And two, he encourages them to remember that they are a people who belong to God, God, the almighty creator of the universe. So it's from this foundation, from this basis, that the Christians are able to receive this instruction to honor the emperor. I think we see an allusion to this first exhortation in our passage this morning when Peter tells the people to to live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. I think this is a similar exhortation as he makes elsewhere in the book and as Paul makes in Romans, which is the idea is that Christians who are living in a pagan state, a pagan polis, which does not have a separation of religion and politics, so to be the emperor is to be a god, Christians who rejected the spiritual authority of the state might be seen as lawbreakers, as rebels, as troublemakers. But Peter and elsewhere Paul's rationale is that there's actually a, a relative alignment between the laws of Rome with, with its basis in, in natural law, albeit marred by sin, and many of the laws of God. That is, if one lived a godly life, one was likely to be seen as roughly living a moral life according to the Roman standards. Sure, the Romans might think it a bit odd or, or perhaps prudish, the Christians didn't like get drunk or go to orgies, and they might think a bit eccentric that Christians were caring for the poor, the widows, the orphaned, and the abandoned, but 
It'd be hard for the average Roman to condemn the Christians as amoral lawbreakers if these Christians were roughly obeying the law, treating authorities with respect, and didn't so much raise a fuss. And I think this is what Peter's getting at in the second part of our reading when he commends the example of Christ. He says of Christ that he suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. We have to remember that Jesus was killed by the Romans. Sure, it was the Jewish religious elite who in Jerusalem who had brought him to Pilate and who pushed for his execution, but it was the Roman state that executed Jesus on the charge of being a rival to Caesar. Jesus was arrested, charged, convicted, and executed based on political charges. And yet Peter's exhortation to live in a precarious social and political context is to live godly and moral lives following the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second exhortation for how to live in a precarious political situation is to remember, Peter reminds these Christians, to remind them that they are God's special people. They, they belong to God, the almighty creator of the universe. And this is even perhaps despite the fact that they might have perceived their persecution as leading them to believe otherwise. And yet again, we see the example of Christ. Peter alludes and says this of Jesus, that when Jesus was suffering, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's God. God judges justly, even when the political authorities do not. And God is the almighty creator of the universe, the origin of all things, the supreme power of the universe, and as such is, most tr is, is more trustworthy, the most trustworthy of any authority. And this, in fact, I think is what Ezra is reminding his audience in our, in our Nehemiah reading this morning. Ezra tells the people of Israel, he says of God, you are the Lord, you alone, you have made the heavens, and the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and that's all is in it, the sea and all that's in them. To all of them you give life. Ezra reminds the people of Israel that God is the creator of the universe. He is the supreme origin from which all things come. And moreover, God has more power than any human institution, political or otherwise, even, as Ezra says and reminds his people, even that of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Ezra goes on to say of God, You saw the distress of our ancestors in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted insolently against our ancestors, and you divided the sea before them, so that they pass through the sea on dry land. Ezra's reminder is similar to what Peter reminds his audience. God is God. God's people can trust him, that he will ultimately vindicate them. He will be the judge, the supreme judge, even if that is a judgment at the final judgment. Well, what then can these two exhortations do for us in, in our context? Well, I think we can abstract from the injunction to honor the emperor a general principle that we can apply in our own contexts, which is to give respect and honor to those who are in political authority in our time. This doesn't mean that we need to give our political authorities power like an emperor, uh, the human institution that Peter refers to uh, that we live in in the United States is a representative democracy. But I think the same exhortations apply to us and the same injunction to honor those in authority applies to us as well. 
And then for the same context, the same exhortations can apply to us too. We too ought to live moral and godly lives, knowing that the vast majority of times we do so will be in accordance with the law of the land. And we too ought to remember that we belong to God and that ultimately God is king over every emperor or president or prime minister or mayor or or whatever. And we too then have an obligation on these foundations to honor our political authorities. And, and may I say, not just the ones we like, or the ones we voted for, or the ones we agree with. No first century Christian voted for Nero to become Roman emperor. No one in Peter's audience would have been excited about Nero's platform when that platform eventually included the mass execution of Christians, likely even St. Peter himself. I can't imagine there are many Christians in Peter's audience who were pro-Nero, and yet he was telling them to honor someone who was a threat to their very lives. Now, I think it's totally reasonable and within our Christian obligations to express disagreement with the political authorities, all the way up to and including, in our own realm, the President of the United States. One's absolutely within one's rights as Christians to lobby, to protest, to advocate for certain policies or laws or practices within our government. But what I think a Christian's not allowed to do is to disparage or demean or dishonor any political authority no matter how unworthy of honor one might perceive that individual to be. Now, a liturgical coda for how to apply this principle about politics. In our Anglican tradition, um, we've long sought to honor the emperor in our prayers, in our own contexts. And you'll notice in our prayers of the people, each week, week after week, we pray for the president of the United States and the governor of Illinois. As far as I know, so too do likewise Anglicans across the globe pray for their kings and prime ministers and governors and presidents or whomever fills that role as a leader of their major human institutions. And you might know it doesn't matter who it is that actually occupies that office. If you didn't like Donald Trump, it didn't matter. We're going to pray for him. If you don't like Joe Biden, it doesn't matter. We're going to pray for him. In fact, you might think the more you dislike a president or governor, the more fervently you should pray for them. And the more fervently you should pray from our great litany, which says this, We pray that the leaders of the world may do justice, may show mercy, and may walk humbly before you. And as we do that, I think we take St. Peter's words here very seriously, even if not strictly literally. Amen.